Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2019 festival, Cecile Gordon, project manager of the Military Service Pensions Connection, and historians Hannah Grieg and Tom Holland discuss the vexed subject of historical accuracy in film. The moderator is Hugh Linehan, arts and culture editor of the Irish Times, and the episode was recorded at Printworks Dublin Castle on the 20th of October 2019. You're all very welcome. Well, I'll just let you all, everybody settle down for a moment. Um, thanks for that, that introduction. Um, I'll just say a few words, first of all, for myself. Um, before my long and undistinguished career as a journalist, I had a short and undistinguished one in, in film production. Um, and the, the first film set which I found myself on was the, the second unit shoot for John Huston's film of James Joyce's The Dead, uh, Houston himself was actually dying while the film was being made and he shot the interiors in California but of course we had to shoot some of the exteriors on the streets of Dublin and I was a relatively young person at that point who was absolutely fascinated by film but the experience of being on the streets of Dublin recreating the Dublin of 1904 for this remarkable text which itself is all about uh, memory and false memory and history and how that in- intersects with our own, own sense of the past was kind of startling for me. This, the, the, the physical reality of what it means to turn what was Dublin in the 1980s into Dublin in 1904, including the very house where the story was actually set on Usher's Island, not far from, not only about a five minute walk away from, from where we are now. So it opened up my eyes to the kind of questions about what cinema is, how it represents the past and how it deals with the past. And that was even more the case when I finally saw finally saw the finished, finished film. So that was a literary adaptation. And about three years, four years after that, I found myself on the set of a much, much bigger film called Far and Away, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. Some of you may have seen that. By the way, you're gonna hear references to an awful lot of films here. Uh, I'll put up a link to them all, to viewing them all afterwards, if you, if you haven't seen them. Um, and Far and Away, was, because it was a much, much bigger operation, it paid far, far more attention to, quote unquote, getting things right. So large portions of Dublin, half of Temple Bar, for example, was taken over to recreate um, Boston in the, in, the, in the 1870s, I, I think it was. Vast sums of money were made and get, were put in, into getting costumes right and so on and so forth. And any of you who've seen, who have seen Far and Away will know that it's a risible bucket of nonsense, uh, which bears no resemblance to anything that we might call truth. And the question, I suppose, of what, what is truth and what is accuracy might be something that we might pan into, into a, a little bit later. And then about three or four years after that, I found myself um, on the set of Michael Collins, uh, a, a massive set recreating central Dublin where the events of 1916 were to take place. And then one day when I was out there, a, uh, a huge set piece with thousands of voluntary ex- extras who had been encouraged to come along to contribute to this sort of na- you know, film quasi-national movement kind of a moment. And, uh, and that, was, that was also fascinating and in a different way. And to see the, to see the finished film again uh, kind of raised other kinds of questions about representation of history, particularly when it's history, uh, which is a national origin myth as well. And what responsibility or otherwise uh, a filmmaker, in this case, Neil Jordan, might have to what we might roughly, roughly call the truth. So there's three films. One is 
One is a literary adaptation, The Dead. One is a, an original screenplay in a very specific Hollywood genre, which is far and away. And the other one is both, I suppose, a biopic, which is a particular kind of genre, and it's also a kind of a, a national origins myth, which in a way is a genre which, has, which we've seen over, over the years as well. Um, and it, it seems to me that when you think about those, all three of those are fictions. I don't think we're going to talk in detail today here about documentary filmmaking and how it, how it relates to film. Uh, although I think that some of the films we talk about would have been influenced by documentary and their technique and their modes of, of storytelling at times. But they are essentially all fictions, even if they're dramatizations to some extent of historical events which we knew took place. And to me, uh, if you ask what is a fiction, uh, I would say one way of describing it is that it's a, it's a lie told in pursuit of a greater truth. Um, and I think that what we're looking to explore today is what that means in the context of cinema. Because obviously there are other forms uh, in which similar contracts between truth and, truth and drama and storytelling take place. Um, Tolstoy and Dickens set their novels against great historical backdrops and created imaginary characters against them. Um, there are, you know, half of Shakespeare is based very loosely on Hollandshead's uh, chronicles. So there's this ongoing negotiation, but there seem to be particular questions about cinema and people's expectations of, of what cinema should do and its relationship with the truth. And then we're talking about history, obviously, but where do we stop with history? Do we go back as far as um, Quest for Fire, which is a prehistoric film set, you know, set 50,000 years ago, or do we go as recently as films about, about events of the last five or ten years, something like United 93, about uh, the events of, of September the 11th. I hope we can look into those and look into more questions. For, uh, but I think first I would like to talk to Hannah a little bit because the danger I think with this kind of conversation is it can get very airy very fast uh, about these big questions. And it's good I think to locate it in the reality, to come back to where I started, the reality of what it means to actually make a film which aims in some way to recreate or to evoke the past. So Hannah, as Bert said at the start, you have been an advisor to, to a lot of films um, and TV dramas as well. And I would also say for the purposes of this discussion, I think both TV drama and film, they're increasingly blurring together anyway, the way that our, our culture is changing. But I want to ask you, first of all, about The, the Favourite, because The Favourite is a film I love, and I think it's a really intriguing film for the purposes of this conversation. So maybe you could tell me how you came to work on The Favourite, first of all, and what questions you were being asked in relation to that. Okay, well, starting with the favourites, actually, slightly back to front because that production was quite different to the others that I've worked on. So we might come back to some of the others as sure. well. But um, So I was approached about four or five years before it uh, was released to work on the film as a historical consultant, which I do quite regularly for film and television productions anyway. Uh, when I had been approached, um, I didn't know the director's existing work. His first English language film, The Lobster, hadn't been released yet. Uh, so I really didn't really know what I was going to be getting into. Um, but I saw the script, uh, which was fairly close to the script, which was actually finally um, filmed and came out in the cinemas. And clearly it was going to be a very different sort of film project for me. Um, but it came at a time where I had really been looking for a period drama that was thinking about playing around with the genre of period drama itself, of trying to do something different with our visual interpretation of the past. So very quickly that seemed to be that this film might be doing that. 
Um, so I just provided them with as much historical content information as I could. I read the scripts. I basically deposited the contents of my head into documents that could be used by the director about my knowledge of the court of Queen Anne, which is something I've worked on quite closely myself. Um, and then he made use of it in the way that he did, which made the film come out <laughs> in the form that it did. I can't really um, explain the process because for that director, it, it, it was very much his process. So just um, to go back to what, what you do, when, when somebody decides to pick up the phone to you, yes. um, what is it that they're looking for from you? Is it, you know, what kind of cups people were drinking tea out of? Is it what kind of language they use in their conversation? Is it what they're thinking inside their heads about who they are? Well, it can be all of those things. And um, I'm obviously, I'm only approached by productions who want to engage a historian. So I'm, they're already fairly self-selecting in the kinds of film and television productions that come to me. Um, but I see my role as giving the production access to the highest level historical content that I can provide as a professional historian, with um, knowledge of archives, with access to other professional historians who engage in debates about the past all of the time. So I would say to productions that if you work with an expert like me, then you can become informed by that level of historical knowledge that we have. But I don't necessarily see my role as telling them what they should or shouldn't do. Um, you know, it's very important that a production has the ability to make their own creative choices, to make the best possible film that they can make. But I would always say that my mantra as a consultant is that I allow them to make choices, not mistakes. That um, what we see on screen, which we love to complain about, I mean, everyone in the audience who's seen a period drama will certainly have grumbled about something and gone oh that's just not right or how could they have done that and isn't that terrible and quite often people write to me to um, point out the things that we've got wrong in the dramas that I've worked with which I enjoy very much those those, <laughs> those letters of correspondence but you know actually in the process of filmmaking there's many points in which you can make a choice about the kind of story you want to tell how you tell it what kind of visual information you use to tell that story. And I am really interested in that process, the process of filmmaking where discussions about history happen at many, many, many points. And often we only think about a film or a television drama as the final product. We criticise a single scene or a single item in the scene. But I'm very interested in that, that process of making as well and the points in which we move towards a close history or we deviate from it. And that can sometimes be quite complicated and we can talk about this in abstract terms in terms of um, what the source material is for a story. Um, so in a film like The Favourite, that was actually, as I understand it, around 20 years in the making. Um, behind it was a script for a radio um, play, which then became a film script, which was then rewritten um, a number of times. So its roots come in a kind of late 1990s cultural interest in women's history actually mm. which is when there was a number of big biographies about women in the past and so we have to look to the kind of source material for thinking about how stories emerge in the public domain as well and a kind of back history to because them. as i understand it and none of these things are set in stone but the way in which feature films for example tend to get made is there's an idea which gets turned into something called a treatment which is almost like a short story which describes the events that take place and that then becomes a, becomes a script, and that script then gets shopped around for, as you say, can be a very, very long time and passes from one hand to another. And at some point then it secures finance for pre-production and production. So the, the scripting process, is there a script in place generally by the time they get to you or are you involved? In sometimes, not always. I mean, actually, sometimes I've worked on productions at treatment stage 
which haven't yet uh, been, you know, kind of greenlit in terms of financing, but who knows when, when they might come through. So, I mean, I feel very fortunate that, you know, in the decade or so I've been working in this industry that I have now had experience of working at every single stage. And um, I really enjoy thinking about how we can embed historical conversations as early as possible in that process because I feel sometimes a production might come to a consultant very late in the day and just say oh we're filming in two months could you pop on on set and check that we're doing this scene correctly and sometimes I will but often I much prefer to be approached very early in the process and say we're thinking about possibly exploring this in a film drama or on television we're setting up some conversations with script writers could you help us think about what mm. kinds of stories we might tell and why would you be interested in having a conversation about this and those are the kind of places that I really like to begin to work because I think that sometimes productions are fearful of engaging historical expertise for thinking that the historian is going to be incredibly grumpy and cross and say oh you can't possibly do this this is just outrageous and you know kind of golf in a big huff but actually most historians are genuinely interested in having those kind of conversations we love history like you can't stop us talking about it so um you know actually it can be useful to engage that kind of expertise at an early stage i think cecile can i bring you in um a shameless plug for the irish times here we did a supplement in conjunction with, with your team uh, last week. And it was about stories from all around the country which mm. had arisen out of the, the archives with, with, with which you work all the time, mm. which are essentially the military pension archives. So it's the stories of events between 1916 and 1923 for the most part. And there, many of them are have never been heard and they're very dramatic. Uh, I could imagine people who make dramas, you know, seeing them as fertile ground for, for turning them into TV dramas. Um, but is... For you, is there an element at all of fear in that process, that they're going to be somehow misrepresented, that they'll be twisted into making stories and that the storytelling takes over from the truth? Fear? Um, yeah, I suppose. I don't know if it's the right word, but I know, okay. I know what you mean. Um, I, I guess we're, there's a lot of parallel between what we're doing and what Hannah is doing in two different fields, in two different worlds. I've just realised that as archivists, our duty is to not only describe the files that we have in front of us as accurately as possible uh, for the, 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 the reader, for the researchers to, to, to access easily, but uh, w one part of our job, which is uh, very key for people to be able to understand the content, is the co providing context. Um, for, I know for uh, our collection, uh, it, we have been working on it for 11 years now, but the first two years were absolutely dedicated to researching the context. Uh, we have around uh, 275,000 files that basically uh, we gathered in one room one day uh, without any indication of how they came into being, or how they were created, who created them, what do they have, why do we have 40 different series with files under the same, very complicated. So what we did for two years, we, uh, we researched the context. That means the legislation that created the files. Uh, just that is just, it's, it's uh, you know, um, difficult reading. It's very dense, but you have to understand it to be able to understand the files. And you have to understand it yourself to be able to explain it to others. Um, 
the context for me is absolutely key. Who created the files? Who signs which form? Where do the files go? In what office and why? How do they verify people's claims uh, of, you know, I did this, I, did, I was in that ambush, I did that. Uh, all of that takes an awful lot of time. Once that is done, then the content, you can explain it, you can understand it, and then you assess the primary source. That's one thing. After that, is in it, you have to release it. You can't be possessive with it. You have to release it. I've given you all I know. I've given you all what we research. I've done my work. I've been as accurate as possible. And now it's for, for people to use. And then whatever happens, happens. Mm. Now, I... You would think that I'm against dramatization, that it has to be absolutely, as, you know, historically as correct as possible. I'm not there at all. I love, you know, a bit of, of, of drama. Like, but uh, dramatization, there's a line between dramatization and falsifying history to maybe steer people towards different positionings, especially when it talks about the myth, the creation myth, you know, the Michael Collins thing. Or, or anything that's more recent, uh, you know, you're gonna have probably movies about Brexit. Yes, the uncivil, is it uncivil war. I haven't seen it yet. Anyway, uh, well, good luck to them. Um, I, I probably won't be watching that, but. Um, uh, you know, again, what Hannah says is so right. You give everything to, be, to, to give the choice for people to do what they want after that. Choice, not mistakes. If they are aware, well, we know this happened that way, but for the, for the movie, for the purpose of the story, we are going to do that. Fair enough. Then after that. Um, mm. But I can, I, we can basically... It happened once or twice. We read articles and clearly written by people who had never looked at the context, had never looked at the legislation and was judging the content purely through today's eyes. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, there is hardship. Yes, there is injustice. Yes, um, uh, the women should be more recognized in, in, in their work during the war on independence and civil war. But the legislation and the criteria they had to fill and they have to fulfill just made it that way. So, so you have to say, yes, but... That's fine, mm -hmm. but um, there are things I don't mind if you know in, in certain movies. But there are things, you know, that are just I can't get beyond this. It's it's getting in the way of me enjoying the the story. And, Do you have an example of that? Plenty, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, we we always talk about Michael Collins because it's it's a good it's a it's a to me to many it's a propaganda movie for Michael Collins. It's just a piece of propaganda, um, which is fine. And I watched it in 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 uh, it was ninety six, so probably in early two thousand for me um, uh, when I came to Ireland, but. Uh, it's fine, but many of my friends still think it's a documentary. And they turned to me, did that happen? I said, no. I'm like, oh, damn. You know, or did that happen? I don't know. Hmm, are you working in history? <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but like, sometimes we don't know what happened. Um, that Michael Collins was 25 during events, that Liam Neeson is 44, it changes the dynamics a little. Um, that De Valera never wrote that letter uh, in Kilmainham is another thing. That uh, Broyd certainly didn't end it uh, uh, chucked out of the lorry. Um, Broyd dies in, in 72. Um, 
And it's only 50 years out. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and he had a career in the National Army. He had a career after that. So he continues. And after he's dismissed from the DMP, he works for, he works for the IRA. He resumes his intelligence. So he's not, you know, the Boland really annoys me. The end in the sewer, um, that, that really annoys me because he, he dies in, in a hotel room somewhere in Skiris. Um, Can I ask you something about all of those things? Yeah. Um, and rather than having an hour-long conversation about Michael Collins, because that would be very unfair to our two other panelists, <laughs> but... Um, are those problematic because they're historically incorrect or because they paint a picture of these events in this period which is misleading? They what? paint a picture that is misleading people, I feel, anyway. And those, I, I, you know, those I can actually get over. This is just a list of, of, of inexactitudes. What I feel is inexcusable is the exaggeration of violence. Um, I think... Bloody Sunday was very traumatic. It was already horrible the way it was in reality. It was a traumatic experience for people who took part there, people who never uh, recovered from it psychologically. There is no need to have an armored car into Croke Park shooting people. I mean, it, it was already... Do, do people on foot shooting other people not enough? Is it not enough? Is it not... Um, uh, and to me, that... Is, 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 is also towards providing that image of Collins as the, the complete mastermind of, of, of the war of independence all by himself without looking at, um, you know, uh, uh, Robinson and, and, and all these people and Lacey and, bring, you know, like, it's just him, really. Um, then, you know, miscasting and, and all that is, is another thing. Um, I think, the, I know it's only a small thing as well, but the, 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 the accents, you know, the, the horrible like, Irish oh God, accents, yeah. we, all, we all flinch at that, you know. But I think to me the, the exaggeration of violence to make it an overblown melodrama is, 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 is over the line. Mm. Uh, and, and overall, when you look at it overall in its entirety, uh, it, you know, everything is biased. Nothing is objective, but there are this, there's this line that, to me, is you, you can't just go over, and that was it. Tom, I'm not going to ask you for a scene by scene critique of Michael Collins. <laughs> uh, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be glad goodness. to hear. But but what Cecile's talking about there, it seems to be raises some kind of broader, interesting questions about uh, it's it's a film which has historical resonance, particularly for say the people here, uh, but it's also a genre film, and a lot of the things she describes are things which. Um, are aligned with genre conventions. The you know the the, the romantic sub narrative, um, certain things about the, the hero and the way in which the hero has to be presented, certain casting decisions, all all those types of things. Villains Seems with English accents, which is, uh, is it which? Uh, villains with English villains accents, with English which accents. is another recurrent trope, certainly in American films. Well, that's well. true, but we have more justification for it here. Yes, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> What are your thoughts on the broader question of, of, of genre? Because m most historical films that are made in commercial cinema are actual, you know, genre is applied to them, isn't well, it? Well, I, I mean, I think the question that, that, that always hangs over um, every attempt, be it in television or film, to, um, to make a drama set in a historical period is why do it? Because it, it's so much more difficult and you, you are running all the risks that we've, we, you know, we've already heard about. So the, the, the requirement has to be quite intense, I think. And I, th I think the, the, the reason often is that um, the origin of, of genres uh, often lies in the past. So I'm, th I'm thinking um, it, this is more in television than in history. 
but one, an area that I'm particularly interested in, I wrote a book on the, on the Julio-Claudians, this kind of terrifying dynasty involving Caligula and Nero and so on. And of course, that was um, made into a TV drama by the BBC, I, Claudius, based on, on Robert Graves' novels. I was too young to watch it when it came out. Everyone who watched it seemed to have been blown away by it. When I watched it, um, I, I couldn't. It, it was terrible because people dressed in sheets and, you know, Roman pillars were kind of wobbling and everything. And the production values were so shoddy and awful that you thought this would be so much better if they could CGI it or if they could transplant it into a modern setting, which is, of course, what a lot of contemporary, uh, some of the best drama series have done. So they've done it with The Sopranos. Exactly, yeah. And they've done it with Succession. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, a a kind of Murdoch stroke Trump family dynasty. Um, And and I I was invited by... um, uh, the writer to go and, and, and talk about the Julia Claudians to the writers of that series. And so just as in The Sopranos, you get knowing nods to the, the Julia Claudian model. So uh, Tony Soprano's mother is called Livia. There's a whole sequence where Tony talks to, to his uncle about the difference between Julius Caesar and Augustus. And I'm kind of going, ooh. <laughs> um, so, so, so likewise, in succession, you'll get kind of quote, knowing quotations of Tacitus and things like that going in. And, and, and that seems one way around the problem of that, the, that you've got all these amazing rich stories in the past, bring them into the present. Equally, I think that um, if you're making films... Uh, that are set in periods of history where film is already a part of the visual vocabulary, then that gives you lots of scope to play with notions of genre. So uh, Tarantino's most recent um, uh, Once Upon a Time in in, in Hollywood about um, Sharon Tate and about the, the Manson killings makes very knowing play with the fact that we know what the story, we think we know what's coming. Um, but it's also the look of it is absolutely embedded in the kind of films that were made in the late 60s and the whole way through riffs are being drawn on the past of 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 what films look like in the past in the 60s so you're going back to the 50s and so on like that and that seems an incredibly rich and creative way to handle this the problem is when you're dealing with periods that 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 don't have film made what 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 do you do with that and one way is to be neurotically obsessively realist and the, 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 I think that this is often a terrible approach because an, a, a neurotic obsession with realism is essentially quite a modern approach. So in, in the context of fiction, it really evolves with, with Walter Scott in the early 19th century. So if you're approach, giving a kind of 19th century realist approach to you know, periods that, that, that are very distantly removed from that, it risks looking ridiculous. And the, the kind of... Um, the reductio ad absurdum of that, I thought, was the, the film called Troy, a, a supposedly about Homer, about the Iliad, that tried to treat this entirely mythic story as though it had actually happened. So it got rid of all the gods and it was kind of carefully choreographed so that they all tried to look like Mycenaean warriors. But it was ludicrous because 
you know, this didn't happen. <laughs> this story did not happen. And yet they're trying to um, present, present it as though it's a kind of authentic record of what happened in uh, 1100 BC or whatever. So I think that it's much better to acknowledge the fact when you're making films in that, that far back mm. that we don't know what happened and make play with that. So 300, it's, it's a massively fascist film that makes play with the fact that the Spartans inspired the fascists. Or even um, Life of Brian, which of course is, you know, I mean, overtly comedic. But if you ever write about the Romans, you can, you absolutely know that you are going to get a review with the headline, what did the Romans ever do for us? And in a way, that, that has contributed more to this kind of cinematic understanding of the Romans than, you know, a whole host of sword and sandal epics. So I, I wonder what's happening with, why does that problem arise that, that, that Tom is talking about there? I suspect one of the reasons is that because that, that we have a particular relationship with photography as an art form. It's always been privileged as, as in some way a bearer of truth in a way that the written word or performance on a stage is not. And that causes a, the kind of confusion which he's talking about there with something like Troy, rather than just embracing the fact that it didn't happen and making that, you know, make, make, making that a virtue, um, that somehow there's always seems to be to be a, t- a tension in cinema, and you particularly see it with historical dramas, between cinema, which was the thing which was invented by the Lumiere brothers, where they put up an image of a train coming into a station and the audience ran screaming from the cinema because they thought they were going to be run over, or at the same time, cinema, a place where you can send a rocket to the moon 100 years before people could send a rocket to the moon. And in when it comes to history, that seems to be one of the core tensions there, doesn't it, between, between I suppose, film as dream on the one hand and film as, as faithful record of reality on the other. I think that, I think, because as a historian, I work mostly with text, so I actually find film incredibly compelling. And I think that there is something about the visual media that has a huge power over an audience to draw you in. And it's one of the things that arrive with accuracy is that, you know, if something, if we see something that jumps us out of believing it to be real, then you've lost your audience member. So sometimes we've got to kind of think about this world we're creating, about keeping the audience hooked in. And I do think that film is incredibly emotionally powerful as a form to engage us. And that can be very useful for history, for helping us place us in a moment to think about what that world looked like in the round. And there isn't really another media that allows you to do that. You have your own imagination when you read a book, but there's something so incredibly compelling, I think, about the visual form. That's... Do you disagree with Tom that we'd be better off bringing these things into the present day in well, 1990s New Jersey or wherever it might no, be? I think that we, I think that we can have a more nuanced discussion about accuracy generally when mm. we engage with these films. And I do think there is a great temptation for... Um, film set in the past to want to achieve some kind of realism that is not necessarily the point of the storytelling itself. So, for instance, a few years ago, I worked on a BBC drama, Jamaica Inn, uh, which is an adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier novel from the early 20th century, set in um, the early 19th century Cornwall, but around a a mythical story about um, Cornish shipwreckers who were allegedly gangs who drew ships to the um, shores and murdered people and stole everything. It's a complete myth. There's no such thing as these kind of gangs of wreckers. Um, So, but the, you know, there was a sense in which the drama wanted to be 
authentic to this early 19th century history? And I said, well, it's impossible because it's a fiction of a myth. So it would be really great if we revealed it to be a fiction. So we didn't worry too much about all of the details because we knew this was a fictional story about a myth. But nevertheless, the newspapers said, oh, full of howling historical inaccuracies. You know, it was the wrong kind of plough in the background. The wrong kind of hymn was sung in the church. Um, the lead character wouldn't have walked through the mud. But not one newspaper article said, but wait, there's no Cornish wreckers. That's a complete <laughs> myth. The actual, the mythology and the fiction within it was completely overlooked with an obsession about all these other things that it got terribly wrong. So I think, you know, we lack a nuanced language, actually, for engaging discursively and culturally with what we want a film to do in terms of historical truth or not. We're quite wedded to a very limited visual vocabulary of things being right or wrong um, without nuancing it around that. So I think it's not that I think everything should be slavishly true or that I necessarily think that it's great to make stuff up and do whatever you like, but we sort of need a better language to talk about all of this with. I and think. when you say we, is that the fault of people like myself? Who yes, I do think yeah. that. Yeah, I do think that we do tend to get some fairly formulaic responses to film. Hmm. And also, you know, historians are complicit in this because a film comes out, my phone rings, it'll be a newspaper. What do you think about what's right and wrong about this film? And I say, well, it's, I think it's more complicated than that. I say, put the phone down, phone the next historian. You know, and then we want a list of things that are right and things that are wrong. It's a very hmm. quick response that we get. And I just, I think we could probably do a bit better than that sometimes, I do. Hmm. I wonder, Cecile, listening... Listen to both our speakers there. Um, there was a film released earlier this year called Transit, and it's a film about Jews fleeing Nazis in occupied France in the 1940s. But the film itself is shot on the streets, on contemporary streets, with normal cars and people, you know, normal-looking police people, except that the story is playing out this way. And that's obviously, that's a more extreme version of what Tom is talking about. But what it did was, it did a thing, which I think The Favourite does as well, it does a thing which, which great art does, in that it makes the world strange to us. And it helps us to think about it in different ways, which is perhaps a little bit by what you're talking about with 300 as well. But it's Tom. not misleading. Hmm? It's not misleading. No, it's not. Because it's so... It's so different that you know you're not you're not into history history. But I wonder, is it possible in in a in a broad way? It's obviously a very interesting exercise to do something like that once. Back in 1966, on the 50th anniversary of 1916, RTE broadcast a drama um, about about the rising about, about about the GPO, and it was in the form of uh, a contemporary television live broadcast about what was happening over the course of Easter week, going live to the studio and back to the GPO. Now, a little bit like your experience of I, Claudius, uh, when you look at it now, you go, oh my God, this is awful, because it's cardboard sets and theatrical acting, and the conceit itself is not, not terribly well delivered. But is there maybe something in that, that the way we frame these things, for example, in theatre, we're allowed to bring Macbeth into the 25th century, much less the 21st century, if we want to. We seem very constrained by the surly bonds of realism when it comes to history. Because it does something to you. Because, because it tells a different story. And I totally agree with Hannah. Maybe it's the language we use, that you know, everything has to be black and white for certainty, mm. because you want to be sure, or the, the audience wants to be sure. Um, I don't mind not being sure, actually being uncertain. It's part, it's part of the job as well. Um, what I don't like is being misled in the way that um, 
was not malicious, but was uh, intended. Mm-hmm. And to me, if you, the viewer, you said about photographs, I, I, I take a lot of photographs in my, my spare time, that's what I do a lot. Um, and you know the way to say, this a photograph can, 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 is worth a thousand words. I don't think so. I need the words that go with the, that go with the photograph. Mm. Uh, a photograph is, can lie. They lie all the time. Archives lie all the time. Um, so to me, it's, it's more duty from the filmmakers to the viewers to also let them know. If you look again, sorry, I'm going back to that, but the initial crawl in Michael Collins, you are told you're watching history. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. And that is... When I looked at the, when I watched the favorite, I knew straight away where I was. I know, I know there's going to be liberties being taken, but for a purpose, you have to have a purpose, and you know where you are in a way. It's because it's the overall. It's not the one thing or the, the second thing or the detail. Is the how does the overall thing look like? Um, and the favorite is a really good example for that because um, the story of the rabbits or you know uh, uh, things like that, and you're like. I know, I know where I am. It's not, I'm not lost. I'm not being misled. Mm. It's a different type. There is one huge example in the history of cinema, Tom, of cinema, film, being used to create a national narrative. And that's the genre of the Western, yeah. which essentially created uh, an origin myth for the United States of America yeah. and has embedded within that all kinds of concepts about power and race and privilege and violence. Uh, and that's probably... The, the clearest example of how cinema can, um, I think in the words of, I can't remember which, which film it is, but uh, the truth and the legend print the legend, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Uh, and, um, My darling Clementine, it, I think. You know, the, 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 the idea of, um, of, of the cowboy as uh, you know, riding into town and cleaning the place up uh, and then riding off into the sunset... Uh, originates before Hollywood. I mean, it goes. It, it, it essentially emerges in fiction as the, as the frontier is being closed. So almost the moment that um, the West ceases to be wild, the Wild West gets recreated fictionally, and then in in the in the context of of film. And because it is so fundamental to the way that America comes to see itself, it's had a capacity to actually influence the course of American history. So the kind of incredibly racist portrayals of um, American history that, that kind of lie at the foundation point. And then the, 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 the kind of more mythic um, liberal approach and then the revisionist approach, all of these don't just hold a mirror up to trends within American culture. They very, very powerfully influence them. And I think that, that in a way, that makes the Western the most interesting example of historical films that, that, that have ever been made. Mm. And w- one of the things within that with the Western, it seems to me, is a very, very specific notion of masculinity, which is embedded in American society, but also in many Western societies. And one of the things about some of the films that you've worked on is that they um, they question that or they explore that or they turn it upside down in different ways. And you mentioned the fact that The Favourite was written 20 years ago at a certain moment in, in, in femi- feminist hi- historiography. Um, and now we're 20 years on, we're at a different moment in that. Um, do you see a lot of that happening now in the terms of the way stories from the past are being told or interpreted or explored? I think so, yeah. And I think, I mean, sometimes film can be very useful for exploring 
narratives that have been hidden or suppressed in some way. I mean, not you know, archives are not complete. Archives are a fabrication of a record of particular kinds of aspects of the past. They don't always tell us everything that, that, that we might need to know. And sometimes fiction can be useful for taking us closer to some areas of the past that might be absent from the historical records. So to think of an example of that, in one of the, the first projects I ever worked on as a consultant was a film called The Duchess that was... Um, that came out in 2008. And um, it's the story of the Duchess of Devonshire, who's a late 18th century woman. There was a biography behind it that had been very successful by a historian called Amanda Foreman. Um, but the film was quite a kind of fictionalised imagining of her romantic um, entanglements. But there was one scene in there in particular that was um, highly fictionalised, which was a scene of a marital rape between the Duchess of Devonshire and her husband, the Duke. And in the film's narrative, the rape... Um, from that arose an heir to the Devonshire estate, a son was born. There's no evidence in the historical record that this took place. It's very problematic. These are living historic, you know, figures still, descendants of the figures are still alive today to suggest that this happened. But for me as a historian, that idea of a dis- uncomfortable aristocratic marriage of a woman in pain and suffering and behind these kind of closed doors of a country house was a much more compelling take of the past than a very pristine national trust bed and we would never have a historical record to reveal the evidence of a marital rape because it was not a crime in the 18th century but I know that there were some incredibly brutal traumatized women in marriage at the time whose stories will never be told because we know little bits from their letters or little bits about them being exiled but not the complete story so for me then a fiction can sometimes take us much closer to an idea about the past which might be missing from footnotes or from the record Mm -hmm. and I think the same is the case in the favour I mean we have a lot of historical source material for that era but again it's not something that's necessarily that well known in a kind of public understanding of history but there's so many lovely fictional elements in the favourite but which compel us and so one is the rabbits which you mentioned so in the film Queen Anne is suggested to have kept 17 pet rabbits okay it seems completely abstract and odd and some people really disliked it she didn't keep rabbits but those rabbits symbolise at least 17 pregnancies that ended badly. So she had a number of, of miscarriages, a number of stillbirths, a number of babies who lived for a few hours, babies who lived for a few days, a few babies who lived for a few years, one son who lived until he's 11, until he then died of an infection. And as a queen, her responsibility was to produce an heir. She had an adult life of obstetric, absolute, brutal human agony for, you know, over 25 years. And that aspect of her history had never really been talked about in our kind of kings and queens of the past, of the things that they achieved and the things that they didn't. It's quite a kind of female, human, emotional narrative. And yet in the film, we have these rabbits. And now people who see that film are never going to forget that aspect of Queen Anne's own personal history and to me that is incredibly powerful more powerful than her saying and listing all of the children more powerful than her visiting um, headstones expressing her bereavement it's very subtle it's very clever but it remains with us and so through fictional elements sometimes 
it can be very compelling to take us closer to ideas and human experiences and narratives of the past, even if it moves away from the historical record in doing so. And makes choices, because an awful lot of what making a film in particular is about is about what to leave out rather than what to put in. Mm-hmm. So you, you could mount a critique of the favourite on the basis that it, it is, you know, disprivileges the males, but about bloody time, says everybody, you know? I mean, there's a there's hundred other films which, which go the other way. So that's a, that's a completely editorial editorially credible, you know, act, act of omission. But I was thinking, Cecile, because obviously Joe Duffy, some of you maybe have been here for Joe Duffy and Freya McClemens' presentation about the Children of the Troubles, which happened just before this one. And um, I had, I've had, had a discussion with them last week, and one of the things about their stories of children who died in all kinds of different circumstances over the course of 40 years is how many of those stories were untold. And that when we are telling a story about power or about violent conflict, um, those who have agency, their stories are often remain. And in the case of the, the records that you work, that's true. People are, are, are claiming to have had agency of some sort and things. But those who are out, without agency are forgotten and their stories aren't told. Yeah, um, there are several reasons for that. Obviously, the, the lack of records sometimes, or the records are there, but they're not available. Um, so that, there's that. Um, it's also laziness on part of people who are not going the extra mile to actually look for these stories. Um, so also less dramatic in our sense of what, what, what lends itself to drama. Correct. Um, and then, in a way, you say, you know, they always say history is written by the victors and all that, but that's fair enough. Um, and, and then the, the work of the archives, the work of the archivists tend to want to redress that wrong. Um, by treating uh, uh, the, the unknown stories the same way, uh, obviously ethically, where we treat, <laughs> uh, you know, we process De Valera's, uh, you know, or, or the mother of the sister, the mother of Michael Collins' uh, uh, file, the same way we treat X and Y from, you know, so there's no, uh, uh, there's no mistakes there. But uh, you say the big uh, the big names of of the irish revolution are, are there yes they're there but their files are so disappointing because they're so well known they're so uh, familiar and they don't have to prove what they've done because everybody knows so you know uh, Hegarty doesn't have to prove what he's done uh, you know Mulcahy is the same so the, their files can be very, and actually the best files are the files of the ordinary people who who were part of this these files are just absolutely wonderful. We have files that are, you know, 200, 300, up to 800 pages of the life of someone. Obviously, their life is like their interaction with the state at that time for that purpose. But because they keep on getting their pension until they die, you have the story of someone from the 1920s right down to sometimes the 1990s which is unprecedented. But you have to be willing to go there and to research, uh, uh, which, which is a big, it, it's a big job. Um, my, my, my favorite uh, movies are the ones who are, you know, fictioned, but injected with reality. Not the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I don't mind, I love fiction, but I like when I was like, oh, I know that story, that's from that file, <laughs> you know. Um, and to me, that, that, that's, you know, because I do what I do as well, I respond, I respond to this and I like that. Um, but for example, the wind that shakes the barley, um, it, it was 
I can I can visualize the file I'm working on. I can see the files I'm working on because the tropes are there for the drama. The hero dies. The big brother is there. The, um, there's a love interest. There's but it's toned down and the 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 rural as well. The rural setting works so well for 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 that movie. And I can see the fires. I, you know, eighty percent of the fires are this. You know, the waiting. It's a bit more boring. It's a bit. It's a bit. But it everything is there. Um, so to me. The files and the context is just are just there waiting to be to be exploited and plundered and kind of yeah yeah um, but do we really need another Michael Collins movie uh, probably not do we really need another big you know national narrative movie maybe not why don't we have the big narrative national in the background and tell the story of 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 people who've never featured anywhere. Tom, can I ask you about a different kind of national narrative? I mean, you said earlier that you didn't quite understand why um, people went back into the past when they could use, use those stories and bring them into the present day. I suggest two reasons immediately for that. One is the opportunity to kind of present the exotic, which has always been part of cinema as, a, as an entertainment industry. The other one is, um, I think, particularly true in the United Kingdom, and we can't get through any discussion without discussing Brexit, mentioning Brexit at some point. So there, there has been a long-standing critique of a certain type of English costume drama, whether fair or unfair, going back to the success of Merchant Ivory films in the, in the 1980s and 1990s, through to, you know, Saturday night or Sunday night primetime dramas, though, of course, not the ones that Hannah works on. That What they're doing is they're playing to a certain conservatism, a nostalgia for the past, a dislike of the present, um, that it's a kind of a chocolate box comfort zone. And that's the function of a certain kind of costume historical drama. What do you think? Are they? Um, I don't think I'm going to blame Merchant Ivory for, for <laughs> Brexit. I think, I think that, that's a, a bit of a push. I mean, the, 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 the thing is that, that, that every country has its myths. And the, 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 the issue then is, do you, do you go with the flow of the myths or do you challenge them? And by and large, if you challenge them too hard, people won't go and watch the films. Hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a new film coming out about Henry V. Apparently, it's a, the director has rewritten Shakespeare, which... I think is brave. Um, so, we're, so doubtless, you know, there'll be, and, and I gather that the Battle of Agincourt isn't uh, as it was in the Laurence Olivier one with, you know, flights of arrows and woohoo. This is a kind of squalid brawl in the mud, very fitting for Brexit. Uh, and I wonder whether, whether, whether you know, whichever side of the Brexit divide you're on, you actually want to go and see French and English people rolling around in mud. I mean, I don't know, I'm reserving no. judgment on that. But Down, um, Downton Abbey has a certain Brexity feel to it, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, Downton Abbey. I mean, <laughs> Downton Abbey is 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 I think the purest form of escapism. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's about Brexit. I think it's about um, reassuring us that our class system uh, is 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 not something pernicious. That. Um, <laughs> you know, dukes care about scullery maids, which is so clearly <laughs> ludicrous uh, that, 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 that you can watch it and feel that this isn't really meant, you know, it's not really offering up any, any vivid Tony's, social criticism. Old but, I think, for the people. But, 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 but I think what it's... What, 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 so, so I think what Downton Abbey is doing is, is making play with kind of elements of fairy tale, mm. which is that princes and, and, and scullery maids do kind of meet up. 
And I think that that is a crucial part of, what, of, of, of why people make films. It's actually not really about history. It's about the way people understand history, which I think is a subtly different thing. So every so often you will come across a film that, I th that, 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 does, that works because it depends on something that existed in the past that, that was distinctive to a period in the past that is no longer uh, operates now. So I think of a French film called Radicule, which you probably know, set in the court of Versailles just before the French Revolution. And it revolves a, a, around a, um, a kind of impecunious aristocrat who's an engineer who has to go to Versailles to try and get some money so that he can build a dam so that all the peasants won't die of malaria. And to do this, he has to go and he has to display his wit. And it's kind of an amazing film because the idea that you, you know, you can save people from dying from malaria by being incredibly witty and saying the right thing at a game of cards is so odd. I mean, there's no parallel really to that. Now, mm. this, is, this is something that is entirely rooted in the kind of social mores of, 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 of pre-revolution Versailles. So I think that that, that that is something that genuinely takes you back into the past and makes you kind of share in the, in the period that it's set in. But I think by and large, most historical films are working on a constant process of echo chamber. So like with, with Jamaica Inn, you're, you're, you're getting um, a portrayal of a story that is a story of a myth that is drawing on another myth. And that's where the spectacle comes in. So if you're watching a film about the Tudors or about ancient Rome, you're not going to get anything really that approximates to the 16th century or to um, the first century. You're going to get something that gives you the best way that you can portray it. So... Gladiator, I, 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 as a child, I, I was obsessed by the Romans and I wanted to see Romans on the screen. And I can remember there was a TV adaptation of um, The Eagle of the Ninth, a kind of novel set, set beyond Hadrian's Wall. And in the, um, the magazine that was publicising it, there was a shot of some Roman soldiers marching along a road. So excited about this. Going to see Roman soldiers on the screen. And it kind of came and went for you know, a minute because they couldn't afford anything else. But I kind of treasured it. It was something so exciting for me. So I, I've always remembered that, as that, that, that spectacle can be something that, that, that you know, if you're, if you're starved of seeing things that you think about all the time and then you see it on the screen, it can be so exciting. Then, of course, I saw Gladiator. Um, CGI, it's like, you know, Romans fighting the Germans and it's like the Vietnam War and there's fire and there's whoosh and bangs. And it's not an accurate portrayal of, of Roman legionary fighting, but fantastic again. And I was taken back to being eight and thinking, this is amazing. I just sat back and enjoyed it. And then when they, they go to Rome, the Colosseum is, is, is grotesquely huger than the actual Colosseum. But again, I think that's entirely justified because you want spectacle and it's about spectacle. And I think that in that sense, kind of complaining about the fact, well, it's not the right size or whatever, is entirely to miss the point. And you kind of want mad Caesars and you want slaves and you want I mean you want all you want gladiators because that you know it's an entertainment and I don't think that 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 um you know most most films are there to entertain and as you say the spectacle is a crucial part of that. Anna what do you think of that? And, and I'm sorry for giving out a bit Sunday night television as I'm well. I'm just watching this time as well. Are we, um, oh, see, I can see some I can see some anxiety. Oh, in one more from Hannah Burch, absolutely. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, I think just quickly on the idea of nostalgia and the kind of heritage idea within filmmaking, because, you know, I do often work on these kind of Sunday night dramas that are seen as fitting in that, that mould. And I think sometimes, though, we miss 
the elements of radicalism that can be in those stories. So I think Poldark is a really interesting example of that because that's often approached as classic Sunday night drama. But actually, if you start to think about the kind of stories it tells, which I'm now very familiar with, and there's novels behind them by Winston Graham, they are incredibly richly insightful social histories of life on the margins in the 18th century, of working class life, of of the risk of poverty, disease, infection, things that actually don't often appear in a kind of classic Jane Austen period drama. Children die, terrible things happen to people all of the time. And it has a kind of sense for me of a really rich 18th century social history that I found incredibly kind of drawn to in the original novels as well. And yet when we talk about it and watch it, it's just like, oh, pole dark you know <laughs> the Sunday night BBC thing but the stories have many layers in them and lots of other dramas do like that in like call the midwife some bits of Downton Abbey you know they explore ideas about sexuality about race about some hidden history sometimes there are storylines in there that you might not expect to find so sometimes a period drama sitting on your Sunday night channel can be a place where you can begin to put in other layers that we might have missed or little stories that we might have been absent I before echo that about called the midwife which i I think is a brilliant historical drama brilliant brilliant historical drama on that happy (laughs) note um we'll open it out to the audience Uh, i should say by the way i did one other point which is why does nobody have bad teeth in in period dramas Um, they do in pole dark dark a bit though fair fair enough um as you can tell i can't see bert very well so you'll need to raise your hand quite high i think we have microphones hi uh oh sorry yeah yeah um, just very, very quickly, because there's a lot going from ahead. The three words that stood out um, in the whole talk is spectacle. Uh, the word that wasn't mentioned, I think it was one you were looking for, is gratuitous in terms of, <laughs> in terms of say, Michael Collins, whatever, there's no need for it. The car bomb in particular was, yeah. <laughs> um, you mentioned Tarantino. Um, I'm finishing up a certificate in Holocaust education, and... One thing that came out from um, Inglorious Bastards was that they, there was a group of Australian students that thought that ending was real, that the Jews murdered Hitler. It's funny enough. You've ruined it for everyone. <laughs> I don't. Given the plot away. I, but there's a more subliminal, dangerous thing to that as well in the other movie I was going to mention, which was um, Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And it's going to be a spoiler, but not really in a sense, in that the German boy gets killed, gets murdered along with some Jewish, along with Jewish prisoners inside camp. The problem with that is, though, it kind of makes it seem like the Jewish boy being killed is the tragedy, and it kind of normalizes everyone else being murdered, six million people being murdered. And the whole, uh, this is around the way of getting around to the question for, my, for the third person. There is, there is, there is, I, I promise. The, the thing is technology, I think technology and the advancement of technology has kind of outpaced it and has helped sell all these lies. One bit of technology that I haven't seen much of is the DVD commentary. And I was wondering whether there was any move to like have a genuine history DVD commentary alongside, or is there any talk about that in the industry? I'll leave it at that. Hannah, you might be best placed to have any knowledge about that at all. 
Um, I mean, there's no kind of sense in which there's going to be a complete voiceover through the whole of the through the whole of the film and the way you have a kind of director's commentary. But there is often a lot of content around a film. So I some you know I sometimes do interviews for DVD extra material, talking about the historical content, and then I also often write alongside a production in blogs and newspaper articles and podcasts, trying to kind of broaden out the kind of historical content which an audience might be able to obtain alongside a film. So there is you know there is a bit of work that is done in that way and I think quite a few historians participate in those discussions and it can be really helpful. I'll just make one brief point because we said that we were talking sort of on this subject beforehand Mm. and the way in which we view is changing. Um, People view and review, they binge watch, they hold on to things, they discuss things amongst themselves in various digital forums. So it seems to me that there is the possibility of a burgeoning form of discussion around this kind of content in a way that didn't exist 20 or 30 years ago. Sorry, go ahead, next person. Hi, thank you guys so much. Um, so I'm doing my PhD in Viking studies, and with the TV show like The Vikings, it absolutely drives me bonkers with its um, revisionist history, uh, especially regarding women. And so um, my struggle is, as an academic, um, I, I can't really get around the idea of, of warrior women or women ruling as men. Um, And so I was wondering if you guys think that uh, it benefits the public to show strong women, or do you think it's harmful in the way that it rewrites history? And do you also think that it's disrespectful to the women who lived through these brutal times? Well, um, I I think the most interesting film, uh, the the most interesting historical recreation of um, kind of late antiquity, early Middle Ages, um, is Return of the King which is conventionally, of course, thought of as a fantasy film. And the reason that it's interesting is that it's a kind of echo chamber of, 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 of mythic and fictional representations of it. So obviously, it's based on Tolkien's novel. Tolkien himself is you know, the great scholar of, of um, early medieval language and literature. So what he, the, the, the portrayal he has in Lord of the Rings is deeply rooted in the historical reality. But, med- but, but essentially, it's, it, it's not an attempt to portray what actually happened because Tolkien is far too sophisticated to think that that could ever accurately be portrayed. And so the archetype of the strong woman in uh, Return of the King is Eowyn, who rides with the, uh, the riders of Rowan and, 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 and ends up um, helping to kill the, the Lord of the Nazgul. Um, Eowyn is presumably modelled on Athelflaed, the, um, the Lady of the Mercians, the daughter of King Alfred, um, the, the aunt of, of Athelstan, all of whom I think are figures in, in the Vikings. Um, but, but the portrayal of her in Return of the King seems to be far more to go with the grain of, of, um, of, of how we should understand the role of women in, um, in, in the early Middle Ages than anything in the Vikings, which is overtly more realistic. Because what Return of the King embodies is the idea that actually the way that we um, approach the distant past is often mediated through myth. And that kind of what I was saying right at the beginning, that the, the, the attempt to, to kind of cut through the myth, I think is often a mistake. You should go with the grain of myth. Hello. Hello. Uh, Sometimes it's impossible to be completely accurate. I mean, I worked on Saving Private Ryan down in Wexford. I built the bunkers on the beach. And like, if you look out on those bunkers, those boats are coming into the west. 
<laughs> yeah, they're not going east. They're not going to Normandy, you know, because uh, he couldn't film in Normandy, obviously. So he, he chose uh, Wexford, which was uh, which was great for the uh, FCA. I think they were down there, and I killed a few of them on the beach. But uh, you know, that's just my point was that you can't always be one hundred percent accurate. But that doesn't matter. The, the most, the biggest problem with the movie is like again, it portrays the states are the the savior of Europe, single-handedly going through French villages and just liberating everyone. Um, I don't care where the boats are going. You know. I'd ask a question. The French person on the panel. Can yeah, it's hard for me. <laughs> we should leave it there with that. Listen, thank you very much indeed to to all our panelists. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History, brought to you by Dublin City Council. You can find out more about the festival on dublinfestivalofhistory.ie and by following us on Twitter, where we're at HistFest.